The year was 1722, and a young man in East Windsor, Connecticut, he sat down at his desk, and with some thought, he took an ink bottle and a pen. He was a brand new believer in Christ, and now at the age of 19, he resolved to live his newfound faith. And so taking his pen, he wrote this. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. Number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. This was the beginning of what would turn into 70 resolutions over the next several years. The man I'm speaking of is a man that some call the greatest theologian in American history, a pastor and a scholar named Jonathan Edwards. And today, as the first day of the Lord's, the, the first Lord's Day of the year, rather, I can think of no better example for us, as this is the time of the year that many of us make what? Resolutions and determinations. Historically, resolutions end by January 31st. That's the history of resolutions. I'd like to show you that Edward's resolutions did not. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6.11. 1 Timothy 6.11. And today I'd like to ask for a bit of indulgence, a little bit of leeway from you. We're going to look at some good and godly resolutions found in this admonition from Paul to Timothy I've only done this once or twice, but I'd like to do this today. My sole illustration source today will be the life of Jonathan Edwards, an important figure in church history. I won't do this very often, but once in a while it is good to see the value in looking back. And let me just briefly convince you why the history of the church is important to us. I'll give you three benefits to you personally. The first reason, the first benefit rather that you get from the history of the church is your humility. How does it benefit your humility? Church history helps fight this false dichotomy between contemporary and traditional. That somehow there is a a battle between those two. All of the gurus, the so-called experts of church growth, church development, they use phrases like cutting edge, unconventional, forward-looking, trailblazing. That's very offensive to our brothers and sisters of the centuries past who walked five or ten miles to get to church to hear a two or three hour sermon because they yearned for the meat of the word. They didn't come because they were being entertained. They came because they were hungry for God. And so it benefits your humility. The history of the church also benefits your perspective. It benefits your perspective in that church history helps you view the church as the church universal and not just about you. Think about this. Most of the church of Jesus Christ is already in heaven. We're the latecomers to the party. And so we respect those who have gone before, whose faith has been lived all the way to the death. You want to know a great reason for the history of the church is because you can observe men and women of faith who were faithful to the end. We're not worried that their life is going to spiral out of control. They've already been faithful. And one more benefit to you in the history of the church, it'll benefit your time. It'll benefit your time when you consider men and women who lived with no technology. They handmade, hand-washed all their clothes. They worked with little or no time for fruitless, pointless recreation. They lived in eras when as many as half of their children didn't reach adulthood. And yet they were faithful in their local churches, faithful in listening to long, long sermons, reading their Bibles in their homes, teaching their children at home to know the Word of God. When you consider them, it tends to revamp your own priorities and to use your time for eternal things. As a matter of fact, to consider those great believers who have gone before us is a command from Scripture. And so I stand firmly on Hebrews thirteen seven, which says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, this is very important. How can you consider the outcome of somebody's way of life with confidence? Because they're dead. Because they've already lived a faithful life. And so the implication of Hebrews thirteen seven is that we're remembering those who have already gone home. 
And so today, to help us point toward a spiritually resolved new year, I'd like to consider 1 Timothy 6.11 with an emphasis on letting the eminent Jonathan Edwards illustrate this text for us. So let's just read 1 Timothy 6.11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul is addressing Timothy as a minister of the gospel, and he exhorts him toward the pursuit of great things. And first he says that Timothy is to flee the sins listed in verses 9 and 10. Lack of contentment, senseless desires, love of money, ruin and destruction because of a life spent pursuing pleasure. And Paul addresses him by a technical term used both in the Old and New Testaments for the minister of God, one called to lead God's people, and that is, O man of God. Now, I'd like to start with Jonathan Edwards, the man of God, and we'll circle back and end with Jonathan Edwards, the man of God, as well. Jonathan Edwards was born October 5th, 1703 in East Windsor, Connecticut, and he was born in what we would call historically colonial America, He would be a contemporary with Benjamin Franklin, living at the same time as Franklin did. He lived in New England, and New England was heavily influenced by 100 years of Puritan settlers, those in England who were intent on purifying the Catholic Church according to Reformed doctrinal standards, but they couldn't. It was impossible, it seemed, so they met as independent congregations. In his early teens, Jonathan Edwards nearly died from a serious illness, and became then terrified of death. And this eventually was a contributing factor to his salvation. He came from a line of pastors. He was the son of Timothy and Esther Edwards. Timothy Edwards was, according to one historian, a formidable presence in his own right. Timothy Edwards was a pastor in East Windsor, Connecticut, for some uh, over 64 years. Very faithful in the ministry. Jonathan was one of 11 children... He had 10 sisters, so he was greatly outnumbered. (laughs) Timothy Edwards then poured into Jonathan. He taught Jonathan Greek and Latin in preparation for college. Jonathan was brilliant. He began his undergraduate studies when he was 13 years old. He met and fell in love with Sarah Pierpont, the daughter of Reverend James Pierpont of New Haven, Connecticut. He married Sarah when she was 17 and Jonathan was 24 They were married for 31 years, and he also had 11 children. In 1722, at the age of 19, he began serving the Presbyterian congregation in New York City. He finished his master's degree at the age of 20 in 1723. And after a brief stint as a pastor in Bolton, Connecticut, Jonathan eventually served now as the assistant minister with his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, in the First Church of Northampton, Northampton, Massachusetts, the same year he married Sarah Pierpont. So now he is uh, now a pastor, and only two years later, he took over as the senior minister, the, the lead pastor, we would say, at Northampton, and he would serve there for 23 years. And during that time, he not only saw church church history happening right before his eyes, he was a part of it. He was in the middle of it. He took part in the Connecticut revivals of 1734 and 35, which saw countless new believers in Christ due to a God-given spiritual thirst for the gospel. He met with and ministered alongside the great evangelist George Whitfield in New England and in Northampton. In 1741, he would preach his most famous sermon, Sinners in the hands of an angry God, which many credit with being either the beginning or, or at least part of the beginning point of the Great Awakening in New England, seeing again countless people come to faith in the months following. After his ministry at Northampton, he became a missionary to Native Americans in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. In fact, he took charge of all the schools serving the Native American population. And for a very brief time, he became the president of the College of New Jersey. This was a college to train pastors originally, which would later become Princeton University. But then he died just months after taking the post. About his life, the church historian Stephen Stein wrote of Edwards, that Jonathan Edwards is indisputably a significant figure in American history. 
He emerged on the religious landscape of New England in the opening half of the 18th century, but soon achieved an international reputation. Edwards' description of religious revivals and his defense of evangelical Protestantism vaulted him into the public arena at home and abroad. Though his life was cut short prematurely a few months after becoming the president of the College of New Jersey, his publications and his personal influence on the subsequent generation of religious leaders assured that his theological legacy would continue after his death. And the fact that we're doing this today is proof that that is so. Jonathan Edwards lived a life best characterized as a man of God, one who proclaims the gospel and one who leads the people of God. Now, back in our text here in 1 Timothy, Paul begins his list of those things which Timothy should be resolved to pursue, his resolutions, so to speak. And he starts with this command, pursue righteousness. What does he mean by pursue righteousness? Well, that which is right, that which is just, that which is true, that which is good. And this pursuit of righteousness was high on Jonathan Edwards' priorities as evidenced by many of his resolutions. For example, resolution number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. He wanted a clean conscience, and all of us are instinctively more aware of this at the end of our lives. And so his strategy was simply to act every hour like it was the last one and that he was about to face God. He said in resolution number eight, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. In other words, Edwards was dependent on the grace of God and he wanted to continually remind himself that he is no better than any other sinner. And what a wonderful phrase. If I could, if I could paraphrase his 18th century uh, use of the English language, he's basically saying every time I observe sin in somebody else, I should be ashamed of my own. He wanted this to impact how he treated others, that no one has been more vile or sinful than him. In his 14th resolution, he said, resolved never to do anything out of revenge. He was very aware that vengeance is only rightly the the act of a completely righteous and holy God. And so Edwards took seriously God's command to not take vengeance on anyone. Why is this important? It's unrighteous for a human being to take revenge on another because we can't be as offended as God because God is holy and we are not. Us taking vengeance is like a thief getting mad that somebody stole from him. It's hypocritical. He said in his 16th resolution, resolved never to speak evil of anyone. Did you catch that? Resolved never to speak evil of anyone so that it shall tend to his dishonor more or less upon no account except for some real good. Can you imagine this? At the age of 19, Edwards resolved to, be a, to not be a gossip, to not dishonor someone with his speech. He would have been somebody you could trust with social media, for example. Gossip is one of the major sins in any and every church, and Edwards was determined to not be part of that problem. Long before anybody coined the phrase biblical counseling, Edwards wrote this in his 24th resolution, resolved whenever I do any conspicuously evil action to trace it back till I come to the original cause and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more and to fight and pray with all of my might against the origin of it. What is he saying? He's, he's tain, taking self-examination to a whole different level. Then when he's aware of a sinful action, he's determined to find the root cause, the sinful desire or the idolatrous yearning that originally caused that sin. In other words, for, for us, if you had a sharp tongue at times with those you love, what's the root cause? Maybe it's believing that your convenience is more important than those around you. If you lust after someone who's not your spouse, then what's the root cause? Is it an idolatrous belief that you're more worthy of that person than their husband or wife and you deserve to think those thoughts? That's the root. That if you steal or find dishonest or shady ways to make money, then the root cause is greed and discontentment. 
In other words, Edwards was determined not just to decrease sin in his life, but to understand the why of his sin so that he could root it out and fight it at the root. And these are just examples. What a tremendous example to us of pursuing righteousness. The Apostle Paul here continues by telling Timothy to pursue godliness. And we'll attach the verb to all of these because that's how it is grammatically to pursue godliness. Now, in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul's use of the term godliness is always the same. It always has to do with the idea of living what you believe. The intellectual assent to the gospel is not enough. There's not to be a disconnect between what you believe about God and how you behave in your life. That there should be a fundamental change which continues over your lifetime. And this includes the aggressive pursuit of God and of godliness. Jonathan Edwards pursued godliness. In his 28th resolution, he said, Resolve to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly and frequently, as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. In other words, Edwards wanted his knowledge of the word to grow observably, that he could see his own progress. Edwards was not a read a chapter a day and feel good about it Christian. He was known to bury himself in his study for 12, 13, and 14 hours in a day. And then his wife, Sarah, would ask, what progress did you make on your sermon? And he would say, I didn't study my sermon, I studied God today. In his 29th resolution, he said, resolved never to count that a prayer nor to let that pass as prayer, nor that as a petition of a prayer, which is so made that I cannot hope that God will answer it, nor that as a confession, which I cannot hope God will accept. Again, let me translate 18th century English. Edwards basically says, if I pray a prayer that's not saturated in faith and belief in God, that's not a prayer. It doesn't count. He wanted to pursue godliness. He said in his 59th resolution, resolved when I am most conscious of provocation to ill nature and anger. Translation, when somebody really irritates me, that I will strive most to feel and act good-naturedly, yea, at such times to manifest good nature. Edwards knew that other people would provoke him, and yet his determination was to obey Proverbs 15.1, that a gentle answer turns away wrath. In his pursuit of godliness, he said in his fourth resolution, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. This theme of doing that which glorifies God is present in numbers of his resolutions and really serves as a very practical example for us. I know as new believers, sometimes someone might say, I'm overwhelmed, how do I live the Christian life? Well, the simple question that you ask every day, every night, every week, every month, is does this thing glorify God? How does it glorify God? In fact, the pursuit of godliness for Edwards was something he felt he had to track, that he had to hold himself accountable to, and this is seen in some of his personal writings. Shortly after he began his resolutions, which he wrote about over a three-year period, he began his diary. And it wasn't a daily diary. It was an occasional diary written between 1722 and 1735. And he had 103 entries in this diary. But his diary was not the silliness that we see today on social media. Uh, Today I had pancakes and bacon for breakfast. Yippee. This was not what that was. His diary was to record his progress on his resolutions and see how he was living up to them. It was, it was his attempt to objectively look at his own life. He took self-examination to a level that most of us never achieve. He basically graded his walk with the Lord and his personal sanctification 103 different times. In fact, in 1740, Edwards wrote what began as a letter to Aaron Burr, the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Newark, New Jersey, but the letter turned into really an epic novel almost, and it was a retrospective look at Edward's spiritual life, it was, it was comprehensive. It included all the major events, all the major milestones, all the major spiritual themes, theological themes that had been particularly important to Edwards. He wrote to 
the Reverend Burr of the holiness of God, his unity with Christ, the advancement of God's kingdom, the word of God itself, the deity of the Holy Spirit, and how all this had impacted him. And he really did almost what somebody would do at the end of his life as a comprehensive evaluation. How have I walked with God? And Edwards was 37 when he did this. So desirous to pursue godliness. Paul continues with Timothy. He tells Timothy to pursue faith. To pursue faith. Now we've made this distinction before. Sometimes Paul will talk about, Paul will talk about the faith with the definite article, meaning the, the, uh, the, the body of belief, the body of truth that we believe. This isn't what Paul is saying to Timothy. He's simply saying pursue faith. Living a life of faith, living a life of trusting God at the deepest level, believing in God's sovereign good purposes, trusting the will of God, walking day by day by day by day in this trust. And remember, this is Paul speaking to Timothy, the minister of the gospel, that Timothy was to pursue his own faithful trust in the Lord, his own growth in godliness, his own depth of belief in God. I find it very ironic, and I, I have the opportunity to speak to a lot of different pastors it's by God's grace alone, but I have found that one of the greatest temptations in the gospel ministry is to get so busy with the work of the ministry that our own personal growth, our own personal relationship with God gets neglected, goes by the wayside, that we don't continue our own sanctification, our own yearning to pursue God. But Paul says, pursue faith. Jonathan Edwards was brought up in the pastor's home. His father, Timothy, faithfully preached for over 60 years. But Edwards wasn't finally converted to Christ until after he had begun his graduate work at, at Yale University. He walked through a meadow near his home and he was contemplating God's sovereignty, his infinite nature, because he had read in 1 Timothy 1.17 that the only God is king, eternal, immortal, and invisible, And Edwards experienced what he described as, quote, an inward sweet delight in God and divine things. And he counts that as the moment of his conversion when he repented of sin and yearned to worship God. In fact, Jonathan Edwards would very often use the word sweetness to speak of the gospel. And there is a a wonderful theologian who took that from Jonathan Edwards and often used the word sweetness to speak of the gospel. In fact, he used it in the very last sermon of his life, and that is R.C. Sproul. Part of Edwards' Edwards' pursuit of faith was a commitment to the idea that he didn't own himself, but he was purchased. He was a slave of God. He was owned by God because of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, which paid for his sins. He wrote in his diary, January 12th, 1723, at the age of 20. I can challenge no right in this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me. Neither have I any right to this body or any of its members. No right to this tongue, these hands, nor feet. No right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell or taste. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. I have been to God this morning and told him that I gave myself wholly to him. In fact, as he pursued even greater theological training at the graduate level, he viewed this training secondarily as being that which would prepare him for the gospel ministry, but primarily it was to pursue his faith in God to pursue his relationship with God, his communion with God through the knowledge of the word of God. As one historian noted, Edwards had, quote, a profound, whole-souled longing to enjoy God's presence and to commune with him. Edwards pursued faith. Paul continues by telling Timothy to pursue love, to pursue love. This would be particularly important for Timothy Since Paul had originally sent Timothy to the church at Ephesus, as you recall, to clean up the failing leadership, to kind of clean house. And so Paul gives him a reminder to love the body of Christ, to pursue love. Many a pastor, many a shepherd has slowly forgotten this central theme of being a shepherd, that he's not to manage the flock of God. He's not to deal with the flock of God. He's not to endure the flock of God, but to love the church. And this love ought to come through in his preaching and in his shepherding. 
some of you are very gracious and you give me feedback on my preaching and I appreciate that. And, and sometimes you'll say that was really clear or that was detailed and, and that's nice. You know what I love to hear? I could tell that you loved us. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to do. And so for Jonathan Edwards, pursuing love was the solution to what he believed was his biggest sin problem. Edwards viewed his greatest sin as pride. And he wrestled with this throughout his life as part of his walk with God. But he fought against pride. He believed that he could, he could denigrate his own pride by loving those around him, by throwing himself into sacrificial service to others. In other words, he believed one of the greatest antidotes to pride was love, loving others. For example, his 13th resolution, he said, resolved to be endeavoring to find out fit objects of charity and liberality. In other words, looking for opportunities to love others, to serve and generously bless others in need of comfort, in need of help. And sometimes his own family had trouble paying bills because he gave away part of his paycheck. He said in his 33rd resolution, resolved always to do what I can towards making, maintaining, establishing, and preserving peace when it can be without overbalancing detriment in other respects. In other words, although Edwards stood on the front lines of theological accuracy, of fighting for the proclamation of the true gospel of Christ, he always wanted to be at peace with others when this didn't conflict with the greater good of representing the truth of God. I've already mentioned this, but to further emphasize, at least four of his resolutions have to do with his determination not to speak ill of others unless there's a good and righteous reason to do so. He was powerfully aware of the destructive, unloving power of the tongue. And in fact, in his 31st resolution, he says his words should be, quote, perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings, and agreeable to the golden rule. That is, consistent with Jesus' teaching to love others as you love yourself. And so Edwards pursued love. Paul continues exhorting Timothy in his resolutions. He tells Timothy to pursue steadfastness. This pursuit of steadfastness, Paul is speaking of endurance. He's speaking of patience, particularly in the gospel ministry. But this endurance wasn't just some personal strength that Timothy was supposed to to conjure up on his own. The bigger context of these commands is that they're all inspired by a tremendous future hope. Look with me, 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, just a few verses ahead, beginning in the second part of verse 14, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That was the motivation for steadfastness. For Jonathan Edwards, steadfastness was expressed in maintaining his teaching and his defense of sound doctrine, particularly in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was precise, he was detailed as a theologian, and he didn't shy away from this. For example, he taught from Scripture the total depravity of mankind. He taught what he called universal disobedience that all men are completely disobedient. There's nothing good that man can do before God. And the life work of mankind is sin. That's a great phrase. He believed that from, from the time a child is born, they have a mission in life. I believe I will go forth and sin. That's my mission. He believed that sin renders mankind infinitely guilty, that sin against an infinite worthy being makes it infinitely heinous and worthy of infinite punishment. That even so-called moral men are still utterly sinful because they're not right before God. He taught from Scripture the atonement given by Christ. He taught the necessity of the atonement, that the holiness of God makes it necessary for him to punish sin, and that God must satisfy his justice. He taught the nature of the atonement, that sinful man is required by God's law to be punished for sin and to fulfill the demands of God's law. And, And since man must do both, that he's not capable of doing either, then a God-man had to come. That's the nature of the atonement. That Christ was actively obedient to be sinless and to be a perfect sacrifice. He taught limited atonement. 
Edwards believed that the atonement is limited to those God predestined to be saved. In fact, he said, elect is synonymous with the term believer. In 1741, he preached a sermon that Christ died for the elect only and not for all mankind. That God eternally decreed to save some. And it was for these that Christ came. In fact, he said that if Christ came to die for those he was not going to save, this would have been, quote, a fool's errand from heaven. Edwards taught from Scripture the doctrine of regeneration, that the sinner is a passive participant in regeneration, and that, it, that regeneration consists of infusing a new nature, not just a, a retread of your old nature. It's brand new. That God must be the one to turn the, the heart to him, to change the heart. And in fact, based on this, Edwards called on the converted to live a converted life. That if you're godly, then it's shown in your godly actions. Edwards was very clear on the doctrine of justification. He said that justification is the state of guiltlessness and possessing the righteousness leading to eternal life, that we become guiltless by receiving the pardon of God. And the basis of our justification is that we have been made one with Christ and in our union with Christ, we're seen as just as holy as he is. And if asked the question, how can you be justified? Edwards always answered by faith and by faith alone. In fact, one historian wrote that Edwards made the doctrine of justification the centerpiece in evangelism. God himself confirmed this doctrine by a great awakening following its preaching, unquote. In other words, Edwards never said, come to Jesus so that your life can be better. He said, come to Jesus so that your standing before God may be made right. And Edwards taught from Scripture the doctrine of sanctification. This was clearly the most and emphasized theme in over 1,200 sermons that we have from Edwards. Sanctification, he said, is evidence of salvation. That victory over sin shows your salvation. That a true Christian is never satisfied with being sinful. That sin is a burden to us. In fact, he characterized sanctification as a dangerous war that we must constantly wage. If I had more time, we could look at his theological teaching on such topics as the miraculous spiritual gifts He believed that scripture taught that gifts such as tongues and prophecy ceased at the completion of the Bible. We could look at his theology of heaven, that it's a place of delight for the Christian and it's very natural that Christ would want those for whom he suffered and died to be with him for all eternity. And Edwards was adamant in his teaching on the theology of hell which he taught as the natural outworking of the wrath of God. He taught from Scripture that hell not only exists as a spiritual and physical place, but the holiness of God demands a hell for the unholy. In fact, on July 8, 1741, as a guest preacher in Enfield, Connecticut, Edwards preached his sermon he entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His subject was the gracious restraint of God in holding back the wrath deserved immediately by sinners. And this sermon was specific to the unbelievers listening. In his introduction, he said, I am speaking to those yet not in Christ. He said this, There is the dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God. There is hell's wide gaping mouth open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. There is nothing between you and hell but air. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. He warned, in fact, that the very weight of sin makes you lean toward the abyss of hell. He warned that God's wrath is like great waters rising quickly behind a dam, building pressure that will break the dam. He warned that the bow of God's wrath is straining with the arrow already on the string, and, quote, it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all, that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. And in a high point moment in this message, and if you will indulge me in reading this to you, he said, quote, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider, or some loathsome insect over a fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. 
He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night. That you suffered to awake again in this world after you had closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. The irony is is that those that came to church as unbelievers, he said, how dare you? How dare you pretend? But he concluded his message with a desperate call to receive the grace of God still extended to them. That if God with one hand was holding them out of hell, he was extending the other hand to pull them off the precipice. He said, therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Three interesting notes about this sermon. First, he preached the same sermon in his own congregation a few months earlier, and it just passed by with no visible impact whatsoever. You'll find out why in a minute. Second interesting note, when he preached on July 8th, 1741 in Enfield, he had to stop in the middle because so many people in the congregation were weeping and wailing loudly. They were panicked at the terrible plight before Edwards got to the end where he made the offer of salvation in God through Christ. And the third interesting note, this was a major part of what church historians call the Great Awakening in New England, led by Edwards, led by the evangelist George Whitfield, several other faithful preachers, all of them Calvinists, who believed in the sovereignty of God over salvation. Edwards was a model of what Paul has told Timothy to do to pursue steadfastness. And Paul told Timothy, finally, pursue gentleness. Pursue gentleness. This is a word that means strength under control. It means meekness, not weakness. It's humility in dealing with others. And the gentleness of Jonathan Edwards was perhaps most evident in his family. He deeply loved his wife, Sarah. He called her my dear companion. After he first met Sarah Pierpont, and I know this is hard for us to understand. He fell in love with her when she was 13 and he was about 18, 19, somewhere in there. He married her when she was 17. But when he first met her, he wrote a poem about her and he called her, quote, beloved of that almighty being who made and rules the world and that there are certain season, seasons in which the great being comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding great delight and she seems to be always filled with joy and pleasure. Sarah was good for Jonathan where he was weak. Everyone who knew them knew that she was practical. She was socially adept while he was distracted, a little bit nerdy and intellectual. So she balanced him out very well. Their marriage was filled with conversation. If you asked either one of them what what your favorite thing to do is, they would say, well, to talk, of course. By all accounts, they cherished and nourished each other. They To get away from their 11 children, they took horseback rides together so that they could talk. I suppose the kids couldn't run fast enough to keep up. He was deliberate about his family life. He and Sarah had 11 children. How do you even begin to spend time with them? Well, he was systematic about it. For an hour each evening before dinner, he would either spend time with all of them or with one of them, and he would cycle through all of them. Due to circumstances beyond their control, when Edwards was dying due to a smallpox vaccine that eventually killed him, Sarah wasn't with him. But he sent a final message to his wife. He said, quote, Give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us 
has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. Edwards pursued gentleness. But if you let me, I'd like to turn once more to Paul speaking to Timothy as the man of God, the minister of the gospel. But as for you, O man of God, verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Edwards had a clear definition of what it meant to be a man of God and he wrote about this extensively. He believed that the ministry of the church was like a marriage in which the husband spiritually nourishes the bride and provides for her. He believed himself to be a mirror of sorts, that his job was to to reflect the light of God's glory to his people through the word of God. He saw himself as a servant and the servant's job was to wash and sanctify the church through the word of God. He saw himself as a hardworking farmer, a servant of the owner of the field who was sent to sow the seed of the word of God through great study, great labor, great effort. Edwards worked so hard at preaching that he suffered physical collapses in 1725, 1729, and 1735, literally collapsing while he preached just from overwork. Under his preaching, church attendance skyrocketed, and in 1736, the first church of Northampton began construction on a new facility to house the growing congregation. And because the heart and soul of Jonathan Edwards was preaching, he had a very well-thought-out philosophy of ministry concerning preaching. He said first that frequency was important because people needed a continual diet of the word. So he preached twice on Sundays and often on Thursdays. And, and listen, a Jonathan Edwards sermon wasn't something, I know some of us say, hey, I listened to a sermon, it was an hour. A Jonathan Edwards sermon went two and three hours at times. And that was just the morning service. He also said his sermons, sermons were to be logical arguments to be persuasive. At the same time, he knew his sermons had no power whatsoever apart from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changed people. He also believed that preaching and listening to preaching was the ultimate means of glorifying God because God was solely at the center of this activity. This is one thing that we do that is all about God. And he believed that God takes every sermon and works differently in every listener adapted to that listener's needs. We've said this here, that preaching is like taking 300 arrows and letting them fly and they all hit everyone differently. He said, but God, who knows our nature and circumstances, knows what is most adapted to them. He who made the faculties of our souls knows what will have the greatest tendency to move them and to work upon them, to bring us to repentance and salvation. He had two basic goals in preaching, explain the word of God and apply the word of God. He wanted to inform the mind of truth and move the heart to action. But as a man of God, he was vitally concerned for the truth and for the biblical gospel of Christ and he stood firmly for the gospel and for sound doctrine. I have to tell you a little bit of history here to understand this last part. In the churches of New England, In the time of Edward's ministry, a practice had developed that was mostly universal, frankly, in pretty much every church. And that was the practice of allowing non-Christians to partake of communion if they professed to be moral people. This also had implications for church membership. There were even two levels of church members. There were the covenant members of professing believers in Christ and there were the non-covenant members who had been children, now grown up, who had been baptized as children and still going to church. And so they were to be allowed to be what they called non-covenant members. In other words, because church membership was very closely tied to your standing in the community, over time, pastors, including, by the way, Edward's grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, uh, bought into this compromise, which came to be known as the halfway covenant. In our day, if somebody says, I'm a businessman, but I don't go to church, our culture doesn't care. In that day, if you said, I'm a businessman, but I don't go to church, that was shocking. So the church found a way to let unbelievers act like they were members of the church. But in Edward's search of scripture, he was convinced that the true church is only made up of the regenerate and that the unregenerate should not take part in the Lord's table, nor should they be members at any level. 
Now, when the halfway covenant was formulated in New England, it was seen to be the way to deal with these few exceptions. What was not foreseen was that the non-covenant members would soon outnumber the covenant members. In other words, there were more church attenders who relied on baptism as children and not a profession of faith than there were actual Christians in the church. When Edwards began writing and preaching that church membership and the Lord's table were for professing regenerate Christians only and not for those who claimed morality or an intellectual belief or I was baptized as a child, he found out just how many people at this point in his church actually believed the biblical gospel. In 1750, based on his position change, the church voted on whether Edwards should remain as pastor or not. One out of ten members voted for him to stay. The other 90% felt that unbelievers should be church members, that if you're baptized as a child, that should be good enough. And so on July 1st, 1750, Edwards preached his farewell sermon. Now, little side note, awkwardly enough, the church uh, got rid of him, but they couldn't find anybody they liked better, so they kept him on Sunday by Sunday for almost a year and a half after that. Edward's farewell sermon showed both his love for his congregation and his warning to them that rejecting the truth of the word of God was now on their consciences and that he was no longer responsible for them. But here is the theme of his sermon. Quote, Ministers and people that are under their care must meet one another before Christ's tribunal at the day of judgment. He preached that you can get rid of me now, but I'll see you again and we'll be all together He professed that his conscience was clear in regard to his efforts on behalf of God's people. He said, quote, It was three and twenty years, the fifteenth day of last February, since I have labored in the work of the ministry, in the relation of a pastor to this church and congregation. And though my strength has been weakness, having always labored under great infirmity of body, his body was weak in many ways, besides my insufficiency for so great a charge in other respects, Yet I have not spared my feeble strength, but I have exerted it for the good of your souls. I can appeal to you as the apostle does to his hearers in Galatians 4.13. Ye know how through infirmity of the flesh I preach the gospel unto you. I have spent the prime of my life in strength and labors for your eternal welfare. And he addressed different groups seated in that building. The, the huge sanctuary that they had built together in 1736 He addressed first the professing believers. He told them that he was confident that the Lord would lay bare all the truth when all of them appeared together before Christ and that he had no fear of what God would say. He also addressed the false believers and it, it was with warning, but it was with love. He lamented that he was leaving them in an unsaved state. He was he was trashed in his own heart about this fact. And after all of his warnings to be truly converted, he feared they would never be converted and that he would be separated from them for for all eternity. He told the unbelievers, he said, "I, I will never see you again and that grieves me. He addressed those close to salvation and he said, repent. And he urged them to convert to Christ. He addressed the youth in the church and he urged them that they speak to one another of the things of God to put aside silliness and speaking of, of of the childish things and to speak together of God and by the way the way he spoke to the youth he hinted that the youth were more pious than their parents were and he addressed the children whom he called the lambs of my flock he reminded them of how he had taught them at times he would gather all the children together to hear a sermon And he lamented that most of them remained unconverted and he warned them that children do die young at times and not to think that their youthfulness would make them immune from facing the judgment of God. In the final words that he preached in this farewell sermon, he said, I pray God to pity you and take care of you and provide for you the best means for the good of your souls and that God himself would undertake for you to be your heavenly father and the mighty redeemer of your immortal souls. Do not neglect to pray for yourselves. Take heed that you not be of the number of those who cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. Constantly pray to God in secret and often remember that great day when you must appear before the judgment seat of Christ and meet your minister there who is so often counseled and warned you. 
In so many ways, Edwards epitomized Paul's exhortation to Timothy, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. The last years of his life, Jonathan Edwards spent doing missions work in Massachusetts, preaching, primarily writing. He was only 54 when he died from receiving a smallpox vaccine in 1758. But by all accounts, he spent his entire life striving to live those resolutions. And my favorite one is his 17th resolution. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. May that be your resolution for this coming new year. Let's pray together. Our Father, teach us this year to pursue righteousness, to pursue godliness, to pursue faith, to pursue love, to pursue steadfastness, and gentleness. And Lord, for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who has clearly heard and even sung the gospel of Jesus Christ this day, that God is holy, mankind is not, and that a God-man, Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, came to be the bridge between holy God and unholy man, to live a life that we cannot live and die a death we cannot die, to pay the penalty for our sins, We pray for that man or woman or boy or girl hearing this in this room or even online, Lord. That you would save them, that this would be the day that the Spirit of God moves and gives them spiritual birth and regenerates their souls to make them followers of Christ, worshipers of God, instead of followers of their former father, Satan. Help us, Lord, this year to do what Paul exhorted Timothy, to fight the good fight of the faith and to take hold of the eternal life that we have been given. Let us be faithful this year, Lord. Let the men in our church be faithful in their marriages, in their families, in their places of work. Let the women of our church be faithful in their families, to their husbands, to their children, to all that you have called them to do. Let the leaders of our church be faithful to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, to be adamant about the truth and about shepherding. And let our church as a whole be a beacon of light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, both here on Young Street and, Lord willing, if you allow us to complete a successful move to White Lane. May we be there in that neighborhood and in this city and in this county and as far as you will extend our influence. Allow us to be light and salt of the gospel of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.